0: The German fleet, German high seas fleet, went back into port. and They never came out. The Grand Fleet was ready for action the next morning. Now, that's that's the difference. And that really is the importance of, of Jutland. So although, you know, people argue and say, well, yeah, it was a defeat. Yeah, up to a point it was. Oh, it, do people it, argue it's a defeat, Gordon? Because well, yeah. I've always thought yeah, yeah. it was a draw. Well, some people say it was a defeat. And they say, you know, British lose, I think it's something like 5,000 sailors. and Germans lose a lot less. British lose more ships. But it was a strategic, it was a victory. No question. It was the last the last time the last time the German Navy tried to go to sea was when they were ordered out in nineteen eighteen and they mutinated and they didn't go. So so that was the importance. But but certainly there were I mean BTM said, said at some stage during the battle there's something wrong with our bloody ships today.
1: Hello and welcome to the pod. Gordon's back as we discuss great British commanders of World War I. And as you heard at the top there, we're going Navy as well as Army. So the list of generals, admirals, and one junior officer is as follows Admirals Jellicoe and Beatty, Generals Plumer and Allenby, Major T.E. Lawrence, Generals Chetwood and Maud, and my personal favourite, Field Marshal Sir William Robertson, the only man ever to rise from private to the top rank in an era not well known for social mobility. We get a few digressions in this chat, and we do talk Alan Brooke. Well, yes, I know you're thinking he's World War II, and he is, but listeners have quite rightly mentioned that we didn't go into too much detail in our earlier episodes, so we cover that. Links are in the show notes, including those previous episodes where we've covered Field Marshal Haig and the World War II commanders. Do get in touch with questions and comments. Always happy to hear from listeners. Lots more great history to come, and do check out Spy Masters, our sister podcast, but until then, I'm going to hand you over to me and Gordon discussing Great British World War I commanders. Gordon, welcome back to the pod on commanders of the 20th century. World War I also ran's. Thank you.
0: Not at all. Nice to be here again.
1: And so last time, for listeners' benefit, we had the World War II also rans. And so we thrashed out our favored ones of the Second World War. Poor old Monty got a good kicking. Orkinlet, we're huge fans of. Bomber Harris, we're huge fans of. And Alexander, we're huge fans of. But one commander of the Second World War that I just thought we were probably um, overlooked. Or we mentioned, but not in any great detail. And this is as a off the back of user comments, Gordon. We were picked up on by some listeners. And we didn't really discuss Alan Brooke much. So I thought before we get going on the First World War um chaps, we can we can get cracking with we can deal with Alan Brooke. And I'm a huge fan of his ever since I read Andrew Roberts' book, Masters and Commanders, in which he writes about Churchill and Alan Brooke, and then Roosevelt and Marshall. He comes across very well in that account. And so as a result, I mean, I've always been a huge fan of his, and and I sense you are as well.
0: Well, he was an incredibly important and influential figure in the Second World War. He was chief of the general staff, chief of the imperial general staff for most of the Second World War. Uh, and therefore, he's incredibly important and we certainly should consider him. I think as a man, he probably wouldn't be the sort of chap you'd necessarily want to sit next to at dinner because he he was from that uh, rather black, Protestant, Dour, Northern Irish birth.
1: This is um, my family you're talking about here. Well, well,
0: it? yeah, I mean, we all. I mean, yeah, I mean, I was born there. As the great Duke said, being born in a stable doesn't make you a horse. Uh, but I mean, he he was pretty and pretty boring, but incredibly uh, influential. He um, took over from Dill. Now, Churchill sacked Field Marshal Dill, who was probably one of the more intellectual army officers of the time, and and soldiering is not a cerebral profession, but Dill really was highly intelligent. Uh, Churchill sacked him because he wouldn't tell Churchill what Churchill wanted to hear. Churchill had all sorts of extraordinary ideas. He wanted to invade Schleswig-Holstein, uh, in 1940, and and Dill said said Prime that's ridiculous. <laughs> what would be the point? The Germans will just just block it off. I uh, then wanted to invade Stardinia, and again, Dill said this is nonsense.
1: Well, so- but if you okay, well, I'm just going to bat for Churchill here. Mm-hmm. If we'd gone into Schleswig Holstein, we've got a foothold in in Europe now, and it's behind where well, the Germans wouldn't expect it, would they? Because it's a bit of a left field attack.
0: Well, they wouldn't expect it because they would realise that even the British are not quite as stupid as to do something like that. I mean, look at the map. All they would have done, they'd have simply blocked it off. I mean, it's a peninsula. You couldn't have done anything, and you'd then you would have had a hell of a trouble with supplying it. Uh, very short route, not, not much divergence, German submarines and everything else. No, it would have been daft, and Dill realised it was daft. Uh, and ditto Sardinia. Um, what are you going to do sitting in the middle of the Mediterranean? You know, even if you had the troops to do it. But Churchill wanted to get rid of Dill. He didn't quite think how he could do it. So what he did was he produced a new rule because Churchill was his own minister of defense. And his new rule was that chiefs of the imperial general staff must resign at the age of 60. And Dill was 60 come Christmas 39. Churchill, by the way, was 62 at this time. Uh, So Dill was sacked uh, and sent off to America, in fact, to liaise with the American chiefs of staff. Now he went down exceedingly well uh, in America. They thought very highly of him. He did a tremendously good job there getting the Americans on side because a lot of American generals and admirals uh, and airmen were really looking East. They, they thought Japan was a threat and really Europe wasn't that important. Dill managed to persuade them that actually Europe, Germany, that, that was, was the problem. Uh, and in fact, he died in America, and I think I think he was the first foreigner, possibly the only foreigner, uh, to be buried in Arlington. And it's an equestrian statue. I, I've been there, and it's most impressive. And Arlington, of course, is the is the military cemetery of of the United States. And civilians don't. The only civilian uh, Kennedy is buried there, um, President Kennedy. But of course, President Kennedy had been in the United States Navy. During the Second World War, which which gave him credit, but gave him uh, the the um, him his birth. right uh, to yeah. to be buried there. Uh, and Dill's statue, it's an equestrian statue, is really most impressive on his on his grave. So brooke Brooks says in his diary, he thought it was disgraceful. He thought it was frightful. He thought Dill was a jolly good chap, but he clearly didn't feel strong enough to refuse to jump into his shoes when Dill disappears. Now Brooks biggest problem throughout the war was trying to control churchill because churchill had all of the, the trouble with churchill churchill had a thousand ideas of which 999 were totally stupid would never work one was brilliant and the job of churchill's staff including brooke was to, to, to find out which was the brilliant one hidden amongst all the totally stupid and ridiculous ones Um, And Churchill did have some good ones. I mean, the Pluto pipeline under the ocean, uh, the Mulberry harbors, et cetera, et cetera. And and, um, Brooke's diary, from that point of view, is very interesting because, of course, he can can put in his diary things that he couldn't possibly say out loud or couldn't necessarily say to the prime minister. But that was certainly one of his big problems. His other big problem, of course, was controlling de Gaulle. And uh, he found de Gaulle very, very difficult. And again, he, he's very clear about that in his, in his diary. Uh, the problem with de Gaulle was that de Gaulle was quite happy to let the Allies win the war while he concentrated on inveigling himself to govern France after the war uh, and was a thorough nuisance. I mean, he particularly annoyed the British by adopting the Cross of Lorraine as the, um, the Free French uh, logo. Well, of course, the Cross of Lorraine was last appeared uh, by, by Joan of Arc who was the mentally unstable teenager um, who was a thorough nuisance to the British um, during during the 100 Years' War. So that sort of didn't get down terribly well.
1: That, that's but just a mild irritant, though, isn't it? We're not going to get upset yeah. by something. Well,
0: people did get before. upset by it. They said, they you know, this is, deli- this is deliberate. Um, you, you know the, the, this this is rubbing our nose and that you know we've rescued you we've given you a home the Americans were very anti Gaulle. they didn't want to go at all they, they wanted to go for zero Churchill
1: was was probably de Gaulle's biggest uh, cheerleader, wasn't he
0: well up to a point but Churchill says that uh, I had many a cross to bear but the most difficult of all was the cross of Lorraine which was <laughs> which was uh, his 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 his, um, his remarks about um, de Gaulle but uh, I mean he was quite right to go for de Gaulle but de Gaulle after all um, had more credibility really than Giro because Giro had sort of gone along with the, the Vichy shaped setup for a bit whereas de Gaulle hadn't but apart from that uh, Brook uh, one of my criticisms of Brooke is that he tended to look after his own now I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong you, you obviously will promote People who you think are good, and the people you think are good are possibly people who've worked for you and you haven't sacked them. to, to, to you know, put it simply, he was a great, um, a great supporter of Montgomery when when really he should have sacked Montgomery on a number of occasions, but but he wouldn't, and and he backed he backed Montgomery. One thing it, that I think was very good of Brooke. When you're in that sort of position, the stresses are enormous. I mean, Brooke had to worry about the whole war, not just the war against Germany, but the war against Japan as well, and all the other things, um, you know, the, the political side of it, dealing with Allied governments and all the rest of it. And the stresses would be enormous. And many a lesser man would have driven himself into the into the ground. Brooke didn't. Brooke, every day, he, he, he'd, go to, he'd go out to lunch in his club, um, didn't matter what was happening, uh, and weekends off he'd go, and he was a great bird watcher, so he'd go off bird watching uh, for the weekend, and then he'd come back, and that allowed him, I think, to 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 last out the war. I mean, a lesser man um, would have probably not to worked every hour God sends, gone without sleep, gone without food, uh, certainly wouldn't have taken any time off, and would have collapsed. He would have just gone, and and that's a lesson actually that. Soldiers today really need to need to learn. Well, I, I hope they Work have. life
1: balance, it's, a, it's, it's all the rage in corporate yep. life now as well.
0: Yeah, well, it, it's, it's, it's very important. Um, I mean, when I was second in command of a battalion, uh, the commanding officer and I used to do, do command of and battalion, turn about. If we were in the field, he would do it three or four days and go off and get some sleep and some rest. And I would take over three or four days. And then I'd go off and get some rest. And that's, that's the sensible thing to do. Um, people who think that they're, I mean, nobody uh, is, uh, is absolutely essential all the time. Nobody's irreplaceable. And um, this was something that, that Brooke realized, and not all generals at the time did. Montgomery, to be fair to him, and I don't like being fair to Montgomery, but Montgomery also realized that. Montgomery would, would go to bed every night in his caravan at Bedtime, whatever, you know, glass of Horlicks and off to bed. And uh, he had strict instructions not to be disturbed until morning, unless, you know, the whole world.
1: Yeah, the Germans collapsed. are on the you know, tent. Uh, they're actually
0: the outside tent tent the tent flap. flap. You know, yeah. that's the way I wake them up. And and he's quite right. And, and Brooke realized this uh, as well. I think his big disappointment uh, was that he didn't, he wasn't appointed as supreme commander for overlord for for the invasion of, of Northwest Europe in 1944. Churchill, very early on, had told him that when we go back uh, to, to Europe, you will be the overall commander. Well, of course, by 1944, that just couldn't happen because although the British landed more men on D-Day, on, on the 6th of June, uh, more men than the Americans, from then on, the American build-up will be much, much, much greater. And eventually, we would end up with only two British, well, one British, one Canadian, Canadian and British army, so two armies. Uh, whereas the the Americans eventually ended up with five. So there'd be far more Americans. So the, the Supreme Commander had to be an American. And, and it was Eisenhower, which in my view was a very good choice. Um, Eisenhower had no combat experience. He'd never been in, in, in battle or he'd never commanded men in battle. But he was a facilitator. People liked him. He could get people working together. He could get people like that and Montgomery working together. And he was the right choice. This was a disappointment to Brooke. I think he understood why he he could have it, why he was let down. But it, it was, I think, a, a disappointment because he hadn't had the opportunity. He'd been a core commander in the retreat from Europe via Dunkirk. Um, but that was his... I mean, he hadn't been an army commander uh, he would have liked, I think, to have been an army commander. He'd have loved to have been an army group commander. Uh, but, but there we are. Nevertheless, uh, as chief of the Imperial General Staff, he he had an enormous uh, and very important um, contribution to make to the war, which he did. And I suppose if you had to um, if you had to put his his major contributions, I'd say one keeping Churchill under control was probably the the major one. Um and resisting sort of things like um, oh, the attempts to which we talked about, I think before the attempts to to sack slim well he wouldn't he didn't he wouldn't wear that he wouldn't go along with that, so yeah, jolly important, but again, probably not the chap you'd want to go to the pub with,
1: yeah, right, and if he had not uh, if he hadn't taken over from Dill then when Dill was retired by Churchill, who were the other candidates oh. Very
0: difficult to say, because one of the things that the British had recognised, and this goes back to bringing back like over from India, was that there was a great shortage. Uh, I mean, I suppose perhaps someone like Jumbo Wilson, uh, someone like Alexander perhaps, bring him in. Alexander was a bit junior, but nevertheless. Right. Um, so there were candidates, uh, people who could have done it. Dill, of course, if he hadn't been sacked. <laughs> <laughs> would, have, would have done just as good a job. Um, although he he would have probably, well, he would have fallen out with Churchill anyway. He
1: died of, a, didn't he die of a heart attack?
0: Yeah, he did. And presumably would have died of a heart attack anyway.
1: Yeah. Maybe um, even sooner if he had been, you know, the stresses and strains of that job. Quite possibly yeah.
0: sooner, at least in America, you know, he didn't have to worry about rationing and blackouts mm. and <laughs> big, you know, the blitz and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I'm... Um, uh, Alan Brooke, or Brooke, Alan Brooke lady.
1: Well let's clear yeah. this up Because many listeners might be confused Why is he Alan Brooke all one word Or Alan space Brooke
0: His Christian name was Alan And his, na- his surname was Brooke uh, Bravo Romeo Oscar Oscar Kilo Echo his, When he was ennobled He became Viscount Alan Brooke All one word And the present Successor is Alan Alan Brook, all one word.
1: Is that a? Is that happen? Uh, is this quite unusual in the uh, ennobling it is, process?
0: It, it is unusual. Uh, yes, I mean uh, Oliver Webb Carter, all one word, would be rather odd if you were. Yeah, little, I would.
1: Uh, you know, that's very thing. strange.
0: Um, I mean, whether there'd been somebody in the distance past, yes, uh, they were an influential family. Um, I mean, the Brookburrs are another branch of of that family um brookborough was uh the uh prime minister of the of the um the northern ireland government uh, mm.
1: for um, a county for manor i think the the, the- i think that's problem, that's where they?
0: they originated from yeah yeah i think yeah. the i think brooke went to school in england um i'm not sure where he went to school i think he went to school in england I think, I think you know the family were more anglo than irish if you see what i mean
1: Yes, yes. Although many Anglo-Irish, Alexander, of course, who we discussed, yes. and mm-hmm. then Monty, although we we don't want to dwell on Monty for too long. Well,
0: I, I'm not sure Montgomery was, could be described as Anglo-Irish, although he, he did describe himself as such when it suited him. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, for a time, Ireland used to be referred to as the East Prussia of the British Army because there were an awful lot of um, people who, who came from there. And again, it's... Why Why did the Irish join the British Army? Because there's be a else to do. You know, it was the impoverished part of the kingdom. Ditto the Highlands of Scotland. You know, impoverished. You well, know?
1: I, I, I'm just in case any listeners are uh, spitting with rage. I've lost so many French. I don't want to lose any of the Irish listeners. And... Well, hang
0: on. I mean, I am born in Ireland. I went to school there. I'm not anti-Irish. I'm simply explaining why. The, historically and traditionally the yes. Irish have joined the British army and why the Highland Scots have joined the British army and why they, the east of England It, the British army traditionally has recruited from the impoverished parts of the kingdom because there's nothing else to do. theres not there, there aren't the industries, there isn't the employment you join the army.
1: That's what they yeah. did yeah, not so many sort of people from the southeast and, and London, you know, wealthier families. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And
0: you see, it's not, we're talking about Ireland, it's not just other ranks, it, it's officers as well. Because if you're born into, a, into a, a landed family, you have loads of children. There isn't enough land to go around. They can't all, you know. So the land goes to the eldest son and the rest have either got to go into the church or join the army. I mean, those, those were the options then.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right. Okay. So I hope that's uh, mollified those listeners who are upset that Brooke didn't get a mention last episode. (laughs) Right. So I thought I would just carry on as I did before with a a nice uninformed list of world war one commanders. And you can tell me if I've missed anyone out or, or if I've included someone and you think this is just the height of idiocy. So uh, I have uh, Edmund Allenby did very well in the middle East. Yeah. Lawrence of Arabia and all that. Herbert Plumer, a a listener suggested Herbert Plumer. I have to confess, I hadn't heard of him. Seen a picture of him, though. He's got a wonderful moustache. And so that means he qualifies immediately. Philip Chetwood. Mm -hmm. Henry Wilson. Mm -hmm. Assassinated after the war in a dastardly attack by actually a, a, a veteran of the Irish Guards. Yeah, he was um, an
0: upgrade gunman. Um, yes. Wilson had become involved with the politics of, of Ireland, foolishly, I think. Yes. Um, he is the, um, the only field marshal to die in uniform with his sword in his hand because he'd just come back from an investiture in Buckingham Palace, uh, and he went to his flat, which I think was in Sloan Square or something like that, and he was in uniform, of course. And this chap came up and pointed a gun at him Wilson drew his sword and
1: died. <laughs> so I think yes.
0: he's probably the only field marshal to ever die with a sword in hand and in uniform.
1: I think there's a recent account of his of, of his assassination, actually. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, which mm. challenges that account. But, yes, we're, we're, uh, it's a romantic vision of a field marshal charging a, a gunman well, with a we sword. We do know that he was on his
0: way back from an investiture
1: and he had a sword, yes. And he would be in uniform, and
0: in uniform you wore a sword. So yes, you know, yes. Perhaps it wasn't drawn, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but nevertheless,
1: yes. indeed, indeed. So that's it. Those are the four I had of the uh, of the army, and then I've got two admirals, John Jellicoe and 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 David Beatty. Yeah. Jellicoe, the sort of supreme commander of the Royal Navy. I probably haven't got the title right. And David Beatty's the sort of dashing admiral of the fleet
0: yeah he became first lead lord after jellico first lead lord is a, is, a, is a professional head of the navy that was jellico and of course jellico commanded the the grand fleet at jutland which is the one that everybody remembers it was really the only big naval battle of of that war um, and there's
1: some controversy about this so let's start with these two Jellicoe and Beatty, because there's some controversy uh, Jellicoe is criticized for his caution at that uh, at Jutland which was the naval clash of, of the first world war mm. and and bt's sort of slightly more um of, of the sort of dashing type uh, attacking commander and I know you're you're quite sympathetic to BT well
0: only because, only because he went to my old school
1: <laughs> um
0: he, he's another one that uh, my old school is in Ireland and Beattie, the Royal School of Armagh, which I am a product, was was also where Beattie went. And, and also where um, Richard Wellesley, actually, uh, Arthur Wellesley, elder brother, went there as well. Formed, right. um, set up by King James the First in, in 1604 with the, its aim of, and I quote from the Charter, providing an English education to the sons of the Irish gentry. Now, <laughs> I don't think many of us were gentry by the time I went there, but that's... That's what they aim to do. Um, is it still still open? Oh, oh yes, oh, yeah, yes. Oh, well, yes, it certainly is. Now, the great thing about the Royal School of Amar when I went there, which was in the 50s, it was entirely mixed. Uh, you know, unlike education in Northern Ireland, which is still to this day, I'm sorry to say, sector yes. in the state, the state sector. Um, the public school sector wasn't, or at least mine certainly wasn't. So we had a lot of army kids there, of course, a lot of English kids, Catholic kids, Protestant kids, all sorts of things. Most of the staff were English. So this awful sectarianism wasn't absorbed by us, I'm very glad to say. Now, when my son was was ready for common entrance, unfortunately, by that time, because of what they call the troubles, obviously army kids didn't go there anymore. They'd had to be removed. Uh, A lot of kids from the South didn't go there anymore. And it had become really largely a sort of Protestant school. So I didn't send my son there. I sent my son to sedbro instead. If he'd been a bit brighter, I'd have sent him to Downside. But sedbro was a good sort of rugby playing school. So that's where he went. And then a few years later, I mean, not so long ago, they invited me to go back on a, on a speech day thing and, and talk to them. And I discovered that it had gone back to what it was when I was there, the present headmaster is an ex-headmaster of Gordonstone. It is once again mixed, lots of English kids, uh, you know, a complete, complete mix, as it was in my day. And I think it's now a jolly good school. And if I had another son, which I hope to God I will not, not that have anything against sons, but I, at my age, I do not want any more small brats. And, but I, that's where I would send them now, partly because Irish public schools are be cheaper uh, than English public schools. Um, certainly in my day the food was appalling but apart from that it was it wasn't so bad oh and that's that's where that's where BT went now the difference between those two of course is that Jellicoe commanded the Grand Fleet at Jutland BT commanded the Battle Cruiser Squadron now the the tactics were you'll remember that in 1907 Dreadnought the first all big gun battleship cost I can't remember what it cost but they built it in something like 13 months by the Royal Navy and it, Overnight, every other battleship was obsolete. The Germans then, previously, of course, they couldn't take there was no The Royal Navy was as big or bigger than the next three biggest navies. That was the policy. And the Germans realized that actually by producing the dreadnought, then everybody now starts from a level basis because all the other battleships are obsolete. So the Germans started to build battleships. And they produced, between 1907 and 1914, they produced something like 16 battleships. We produced lots more. Uh, And that's the naval arms race. That's one of the reasons Britain comes into the First World War. uh, Because why did the Germans want a blue water navy? They don't have an empire to protect. Uh, They don't rely on overseas trade. They don't import 30% of their food, as England does. Why do they need a blue water navy? The only reason they can want a blue water navy with all these battleships is to take on the Royal Navy at some stage in the future.
1: And they hadn't read the but, rules, which is that the Royal Navy yeah. is supreme on, on the waves. Yeah, in that and That's um, just
0: the way it is. Yeah, that's the way it is. And um, so the tactic was you had the battleships fleet um, and the battle cruisers. Now, the battle cruisers, uh, again, they were built to, to complement the, the dreadnoughts. They were a bit faster than the dreadnoughts. They equally had big guns, slightly less armour, so they could a bit faster. And the idea of the battle cruisers and, and BT command of the battle cruiser squadron, that the battle cruisers being faster than the main fleet would find out where the enemy were and, and follow them. Not necessarily engage them in battle, but follow them until the main fleet uh, came up. And that's what they tried to do. And it didn't really work. Um, all sorts of reasons why. Uh, for a start, um, I think We'd got some of the technology wrong. The um, system of of ensuring that uh, something happened, something exploding in a gun turret didn't go all the way down to the magazine. uh, That hadn't been properly thought through. And a number of the casualties to British ships uh, were because of that. The Germans actually had thought it through uh, and they had a system whereby if there was an explosion in a turret, it didn't then go all the way down to the magazine and, Blow the British ship up. Now, the British lost more ships and more men at the Battle of Jutland, but the difference is this: the German fleet, German High Seas Fleet, went back into port and they never came out. The Grand Fleet was ready for action the next morning. Now, that's that's the difference, and that really is the importance of of Jutland. Uh, so, although you know people argue and say, "Well, you know, it was a defeat." Uh, yeah, uh, up to a point it was Oh, but, uh, do, do people, people argue it's a defeat, Gordon? Because well,
1: yeah. I've always thought yeah, yeah. It, was well, it was a
0: draw Well, some people say it was a defeat And they say, you know, British lose I think it's something like 5,000 sailors And Germans lose a lot less British lose more ships uh, But it was a strategic, it was a victory No question It was the last the last time the, the last time the German Navy tried to go to sea Was when they were ordered out in 1918 And they mutinied and they didn't go uh, so, so that was the importance but but certainly, there were, I mean, BTM said, said at some stage during the battle there's something wrong with our bloody ships today. And there, there were things wrong technologically, which which they' then trying to put right before the next war, but of course, the uh, you know, Lloyd George's policy of of saying we can afford to take uh, chances on defense, we can't afford to take chances on welfare, uh, meant that really there, there wasn't enough money. To really bring the Royal Navy up to date, so come World War II, it was still a huge navy, bigger than anybody else's, uh, and certainly nothing that the Germans could do that would worry really that would worry the Royal Navy terribly. But you did get uh, examples of of things that went wrong. I mean, you got the Hood and Repulse, uh, you know, ships being sent off to the Far East without like air cover and that sort of thing. But um, but essentially. Uh, the Royal Navy still ruled the waves, really, right up until well, when you think in 1956 for the Suez Caper, we deployed eight aircraft carriers. Wow. You know, eight. Uh and when I joined when I joined the army in 1960, um we still had eight aircraft carriers. Uh we've now got two. Now, I better do the two we've got are the most modern in the world. Now, American naval officer was saying to me, I wish
1: we had them. Um, because but the propellers don't work, Gordon. They've just uh, this, the the Queen yeah, Elizabeth can't get out of port because it's yeah.
0: The Prince of Wales is going instead, but yeah. yeah. I mean, you will always get this uh, with with anything new. You will get you will get faults that
1: have to be put right. Um, you, you don't think it's a sign of a more a, a malaise in or the military procurement or
0: con- oh, the military procurement is a total shambles. I mean, it's a disgrace. Uh, the military are led by the ears by by contractors. And the problem is that an officer, naval or army or air force, posted to the Ministry of Defence, does two years, and there's thank Christ when he finishes and gets back to proper structuring, if you like. Civil servants are there forever, and they're the people, really, the, and I'm not suggesting they're bribe by contractors or anything like that. I mean, I don't think they are. I don't think the system's corrupt, but I think it's incompetent. It's inefficient. Um People have tried. I mean, General Sam Cowan, who, if anybody could sort them out, Sam Cowan was the man who could. And he had a desperate job trying to sort out the procurement system. I mean, he improved it. He didn't, you know, he didn't manage to solve everything because his, his tour uh, at head of procurement was was uh, was over. But yeah, I mean, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, there is the things are taking far too long. There's far too much of an overrun. Contractors are not held with their nose to the grindstone and told you will produce on this cost by such such a date or you don't get paid. One of the problems that has to be said on the other side is, uh, you know, the the, the perfect is the enemy of the good because the the army will provide a design for, let's say, an armored car or something. And they'll start doing that. And then somebody will say, ah, couldn't we add this? And, oh, well, it might be better if we did this, did that. And they keep changing their mind, which is not a good idea. You want to to say, this is what we want. Get it made. Get it into service. And, yes, there may be something else that comes up that could be an improvement. But, you know, it's too late. Go ahead and produce the bloody thing. Well,
1: well, going back to the British dreadnought then and the design flaw that you mentioned where... You get a shell that hits the turret of the gun and it goes all the way down into the magazine. Uh, Now, call me clever after the event, but wouldn't that be something that you would want to uh, uh, cater for, but that you might receive incoming fire? I know they're all thinking with the Royal Navy, it's unlikely anyone's ever going to hit us, but it's a possibility.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there was a system. I mean, (laughs) they knew that this was a risk, Uh, but the the mechanics that they had installed uh, simply weren't good enough uh whereas whereas the germans the germans had i mean one also has to remember that the difference uh, royal navy ships had to be able to stay at sea forever if you like and and go all around the world ships of the german navy only had to be designed to stay out of sea for for perhaps a few days uh, not for not for very long i mean all right you've you got the the, the battles around the Falklands and the First Royal Naval battles, but in general they didn't. And the same thing, uh, you know, why was it that uh, British naval captains in the Napoleonic Wars really quite liked being given the captaincy of a captured French ship? Because French ships were faster and more manoeuvrable. Uh, and the reason for that was that the Royal Navy ships had to be sturdy enough to spend, you know, months and months and months at sea and the crew accommodation had to be reasonably good for that reason. French ships they didn't didn't care much about crew accommodation. they're only going to be out for a weekend and then they're back in port. Uh, so their ships were uh, were lighter um, and, and and faster for, for, for that reason. They still got sunk whenever they met the, the Royal Navy. But I mean there were differences and and um, the British going back to the original question, of course the British knew that there was a risk. And they had a system in place to protect against it, which simply didn't work Mm. on a number of occasions.
1: Because Beattie takes over from Jellicoe, as you've mentioned, uh, as first sea lord. Mm. Jutland's in 1916. Is there a difference in approach or the fact that the German fleet's return to port and doesn't come out again means that Beatty's job's been done for him by Jellicoe?
0: Yeah, well, a pair of them. I mean, it, it was... Uh, it was very much a t- tandem yeah. type oh, thing. Yeah. Like. yeah, I mean, uh, B- uh, BT is, is under Jellicoe, of course, commanding the the battle cruiser squadron. Um, so it's a joint business. I mean, there were all sorts of problems. There were problems of visibility. There were problems happening at night and, and whatnot. Um, they tried to cut off the German retreat and couldn't... Um, and they, uh, I suppose now, uh, or even in the Second World War, with radar, that wouldn't have happened, because they would have been able to work out exactly where the enemy were. But then they, they didn't have radar. Um, they simply weren't able to
1: do it. Right. Okay. Well, uh, well, that's good. They, they're both... Um... I don't think there's anyone else naval-wise we really need to mention. So let's get let's go to the the. Well, we've ar- talked,
0: I think we talked about Cunningham last week, didn't we?
1: Yes, we did. We he, did. He's,
0: he's important. We talked about him.
1: Right. So going back to the army. Right. So I had Allenby, Plumer, Chetwood, and Wilson. Mm. Are there any of those on there that shouldn't be on there?
0: No, I think they're 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 all they're all worthy of their place. Chetwood, perhaps not quite so important to someone like like Plumer.
1: Plumer is important. Plumer is um, yeah. Let's talk about Plumer, because I I'm not familiar yeah. with him. Plumer
0: was uh, was a, was an Etonian, like like uh, like Maud, um, but he was commissioned to the Auckland Lancaster Regiment, which is a much more modest infantry regiment. Um, again, like all the soldiers of his generation, uh, he first saw active service in the Sudan in Kitchener's War there. Uh, went to Staff College. Um, during the Matabele uprising in South Africa, uh, he put together a thing called the Matabele Relief Force, which is a very interesting organization of um, mounted infantry, uh, British infantry on, on horses. So the horse got them from A to B, they got off the horse and fought as infantry, um, and some Zulu levies, um, and, and they were actually pretty successful. Uh, then again, he was in the in the Boer War, South Africa War, when that happens. Um, 1914, uh, he's uh, originally, he's a a brigade commander, quickly, and then a divisional commander. And then eventually he commands the Second Army. And he commands the Second Army, which is up on the Ypres salient, really for most of the war. Um, He devises a system which he calls bite and hold. In other words, if you're going on the offensive, instead of simply sailing off or Marching off into the white blue yonder and keep going as long as you can. You identify objectives, you take them and you hold them, and you reinforce them against the inevitable counterattack. Then you decide your next objective and 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 on you go. And that's something that really the whole of the British Expeditionary Force adopts eventually, uh, certainly by 1918 and the the um, the last the last hundred days. It's said that he was the moral, the model for Colonel Blimp because he's got a huge warmest moustache. He went grey very, very quickly. It's said that he went grey in 1914 because of the, the stress of those early battles, battles of Ypres. That may or may not be true, but certainly he was. He had a great shock of, of grey hair, and great white warmest moustache. And if you remember the cartoons of Colonel Blimp, uh, look exactly like that. He was very far from being a blimp Plumer was not a blimp. He was very, very bright. He was the genius behind the capture of Messines Ridge, which was the beginning of Third Epe. And it it happened absolutely as planned by Plumer. Terrific success. Pushed the Germans back uh, five or six miles off Messines Ridge. Now you've got Messines Ridge, you can start to try and break out in the Epe salient. Now, unfortunately, uh, there simply wasn't enough artillery or indeed, stacks of ammunition to go straight in. If, if after machines that the next day, bang, they tried to break out of the heaps alien, they might have got somewhere. But there had to be a delay uh, while the artillery was moved, while uh, stocks of ammunition are restockpiled piled, and, and everything else. And the result was that the, although initially it went pretty well, uh, it then it got bogged down, um, and it was initially taken by by. Gough, Gough was a get up and get him, and, and Haig thought perfectly reasonably that that was what he wanted. It was Plumer's methodical planning was what was needed for Messines Ridge. After that, you wanted somebody that was, you know, two up in bags of smoke. That didn't really work. It was so the battle was hand, handed back to to Plumer. Um, Passchendaele is generally thought well thirty. Passchendaele was just one of the battles of thirty. Thirty is the correct term. A lot of people think it was a disaster. Actually, 30 pulled in over half the divisions that the Germans had on the Western Front and it gave them a very bloody nose indeed. It had to be kept going because of what's happened to the French. The French army have effectively mutinied. Um Pétain takes over as commander-in-chief of the French army, Nivelle having got the sack, and immediately sends half the French army on leave. Uh, and so 30 has got to keep going. Haig would have closed it down when when the rains broke in, in October. Uh, but he couldn't. He had to had to, had to keep going. Uh, and this is Plumer, Second Army. Um, it is said that um Lloyd George wanted him to take over from Hague. Lloyd George, of course, wanted to get rid of Hague for reasons that we discussed uh, the other day. Plumer made it very clear that he was prepared, he wasn't, didn't want the job. Lloyd George also, at one stage, thought of uh, getting rid of Robertson. Now Robertson's somebody we ought to discuss. Actually, it's not on your list, but but we should. And again, Plummer made quite clearly he wasn't he wasn't going to do that. Eventually, of course, he becomes a field marshal with a baton and um, a very high grade soldier indeed. Uh, and and probably that if Haig had been killed, Plummer would have been the man to take over. I think probably. And he could have he could have been a very good CIJS as well.
1: Were there more? Uh, I guess there were more. Uh, the armies w- was a lot bigger, but it seems the ratio of n- the number of field marshals is lower than the ratio of, of field marshals you see even more recently. Am I? Uh, is that a bit of?
0: Well, um, the, remember that um, the B.E.F. is uh, is over two million men. So, and there's only one field marshal. That's Haig. The others all become field marshals later, after the war. After the war, doing right. different. Yeah, so so they're not they're not there. Presently, there are no the, the rank still exists, but there are no field marshals. This is down to that thoroughly unpleasant man Peter Inge, uh, who was the last field marshal. Now he became a field marshal because he was chief of the defence staff. At that stage, chiefs of the defence staff were always a field marshal, uh, and he decided that there wouldn't be any more. Uh, so he was the last. The Queen actually made Charles Guthrie a field marshal, Guthrie having been chief of the defense staff and tired. Uh so he's Charles Guthrie is still around as a field marshal. Uh John Chapel, of course, is dead, dead not so long ago. Just trying to think I don't think there
1: are any But you... in, in the Americans very rarely um promote the... Well, they have a different
0: system. Um in America, Congress is responsible for promotions. And for a very long time. Uh, Congress would not promote anybody above the rank of major general. And this was all financial. So, if you take the First World War, uh, American army commanders, uh, American commanders tended usually to be a rank or two lower than their British equivalents, uh, and they're only acting. So, for example, Pershing initially was a major general. He's made an acting uh, general. Uh, his his army two army commanders are made acting i think acting lieutenant generals but they've all got to come back to major general after the war because congress doesn't want to pay them a pension basically. um it's slightly different now uh but because,
1: well it, eisenhower was was a four star general and montgomery was a field marshal i think yeah um, even though he was he, his he was subordinate to yeah. eisenhower
0: yeah correct but but Eisenhower, by appointment, was senior. Eisenhower was the Supreme, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe.
1: In fact, didn't Montgomery get promoted to Field Marshal prior to Brooke?
0: No, I don't think
1: so. He didn't. Okay.
0: but I, I'd have to check on that. I don't think yeah. so. Yes. Because no. Brooke was, was a general for most of the war, as a, they, well, so was Montgomery actually, come to that. Montgomery doesn't get promoted to Field Marshal until um, September 44. Right, I think until certainly until after Overlord, it was a sort of sop because he he was no longer going to be the land forces commander. Eisenhower took that over himself, and so Montgomery now will just command the British element, Twenty One Army Group, uh, and and that's when he was promoted to field marshal, sort of give him a uh, give him a bit of a boost, which would be correct actually, because normally it's it's um, divisional commanders commanded by major generals, corps commanded by lieutenant generals, armies commanded by generals, army group. Commandant about field Marshal so that was
1: that was correct right okay, so yeah pluma had Haig been killed or died, he would have likely taken over I think
0: he would be the the ideal candidate I mean a lot would depend on i mean these things once you get to that level these things are political uh but I think um I think
1: plumer would have had the 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 confidence of the army, and I think he'd be the obvious chap right. Okay, now Allenby had a huge amount of success helping to free much of the Middle East from yeah. the grip of the Ottoman Empire into yeah. the clutches um, of the uh, British Empire.
0: Yeah, Allenby, um, I mean, he, he initially never wanted to be a soldier. Allenby wanted to join the Indian Civil Service. And he took the exam, I think, at least twice, maybe three times, and failed so
1: he, he didn't get into the Civil Service. It was self. tougher to get into the Indian Civil Service than the um the the British Civil Service, I think.
0: Um, Yeah, I think it probably was, because uh, once you went to the Indian Civil Service, you had responsibility. It's all like joining the Indian Army. You got responsibility far greater than your British equivalent. Uh, so if you joined the Indian Army, uh, you would command a company uh, as a lieutenant, probably, uh, whereas, you know, in the British Army to be at least a senior captain, possibly a major. So so the civil service was the same. I mean, you could, you could be a... I remember um, a chap that I served under, who was one of the sort of last of the Raj. And he commanded... I remember him telling me that he commanded an area the size of Wales. And he was a subaltern. I mean, he was a youngster. Um, and he had um, 300 soldiers and 200 camels, I think it was. And this was way up in Rajasthan. So so they got, and that's why it was very difficult to get into it. So, so poor old Alamly didn't get in. And I don't think he was particularly uh, academic anyway. I mean, he was commissioned into the uh, interstilling Dragoon Guards, sixth Sixth Dragoons, um, did go to Staff College. Um, he, all his reports from Staff College said that um, he was always prepared to listen, was not a great debater. Uh, but but was generally sensible it was the sort of thing they said about him he was popular with his um, with his peers they elected him to be master of the sandhurst and staff college draghounds uh, this is something that haig wanted to be uh, and didn't get um i as a past master of Sandhurst and staff college draghounds <laughs> so alumby got it so he was he was popular with his with his friends um of course come the Actually, funny, he went to South Africa, I mean, as they all did, of that generation. uh, And he took with him a pack of foxhounds. So he clearly was a good chap, the right sort of idea. Um, And I I think the descendants of those foxhounds are still there. Will they still hunt in South Africa? Not, I have no idea. But but that's uh, what he did.
1: Perhaps some listeners can... Let us know.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, do they, I mean, there aren't any foxes now, as far as I know, but they might hunt. Um, I mean, it's sort all of like India, where they hunt. They still hunt jackals. I mean, the Peshawal Vale, which is in Pakistan, they they still hunt, but they hunt jackals rather than rather than foxes. But they do it properly. I mean, they you know they pink goats and all the rest of it. So Allenby uh, then come the First World War, come 1914. He's um, initially commanding a cavalry division and then the two division cavalry corps. Um, he does he does well, I think. Now he come he's criticized for Lecato. Um I think unfairly actually I think Lakato had to happen. John French thought it shouldn't have happened, but it had to happen. It's the only way to stop the Germans and hand them off. Um, but it was uh, and of course Smith Dorian was was the Corps commander at Lecato. Um Allenby was the was the cavalry rearguard really wh- who were sort of finding out where the Germans were, where they were coming from. Um and he did he did he did well there. Um but where he really made his name uh was um when he sent off to Palestine, where he and he ends up um being the commander-in-chief there. That's where all his sort of cavalry business really can be used because there was never going to be the great arm blanche you know advanced to charge to berlin that wasn't going to happen on the western front wire machine guns all the rest of it but of course uh, when he gets to palestine it's open country it's ideal for cavalry uh, and of course he captures he recaptures or captures jerusalem uh, and he's He's quite clever there because he dismounts. He doesn't ride into Jerusalem. He gets off and he walks in on his feet. And that pleases uh, all religions that, ha- that are interested in Jerusalem, you know, the Christians, the Muslims, the Jews. Uh, so he's um, he, he's he's made his name. It was Palestine made him, actually. I mean, he's a perfectly competent cavalry commander on the Western Front, but it's Palestine that makes his name. Known as the Bull,
1: Alan and he, And he had quite a good relationship with Lawrence, didn't he?
0: Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the, the the Lawrence thing. Um, Lawrence was one of the. Uh, much British history is made by lunatics. They're always quite interesting lunatics. <laughs> Lawrence. Lawrence, I think, was one of them. Yeah. I mean, Allenby was quite happy for. I mean, Lawrence,
1: well, we should actually. I wonder if we should have included Lawrence in this list. I well,
0: no, Lawrence was a very junior, officer.
1: Really. But he had a huge amount of influence in a large um, land area.
0: Not quite as much as everybody thinks. I mean, wonderful film, um, Lawrence of Arabia. But um, yes, he it was, and of course he he his book, you know, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. That's that's well read, and I don't think that his <coughs> what he did was was as important as as people tend to think. Now I'll have all sorts of people telling me I'm talking rubbish. Um, I think what he did in its own way was important. He had a good relationship with the with the Arabs. Uh, he made all sorts of promises with them to them uh, that he couldn't keep. Yeah, um, not his fault that they couldn't be kept, but he should never have made them in the first place. I mean, if you make a promise, you're not bloody sure that you're able to carry it out. And of course, he he couldn't for all all sorts of reasons. And then he um, he really got very odd indeed. I mean, he went off as you know. He he joined the Royal Air Forces and aircraftsman, and and then it was discovered who he was, and 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 eventually he's. Um, and he he kills himself on a motorcycle, motorcycle. Yes, yes. It's it's.
1: So he's um his his tie because he goes to the Treaty of Versailles. Very interesting. Um, yeah, he, he's he's turned
0: about. he's he's up there on the on the various conferences as to what's going to happen, and and he's very much pushing for.
1: Yeah, he's not into sykes Pico at all.
0: No, he's not involved in that. Um, I was saying about sympathy with sykes Pico, actually. There we go. Yeah, I mean, the Ottoman Empire has collapsed. What are you going to do with it? You know, and the British are interested and the French are interested. The Americans are interested in in self-determination, but mm. they really have no influence over what happens to uh, in the Middle East.
1: But Allenby does actually manage to navigate his way through that pretty effectively. Yeah,
0: he? it's a very difficult minefield. And yes, yeah. he does navigate his way through it. Yeah. Uh, and the result... Um, would I think if we hadn't if the Second World War hadn't come along then things might have been perfectly all right in the, in the in the Middle East but um
1: yeah that's not what happened uh, well another commander who we, who I mentioned and I think you might not think he should be on this list but should we just deal with him quickly to, as to why he shouldn't be which is Chetwood, Philip Chetwood he could he, he goes to the Middle East doesn't he he avoids um, too much involvement in uh yeah
0: I mean um I, he's a perfectly competent Operator, there's not much more you can say about him, really. Um, I mean, the big, the big, uh, the chap really makes a, a difference in the Middle East is, or Mesopotamia, of course, is Maud, who gets there when the thing is a shambles. Frankly.
1: This is the other Atonian. You no, know, no, you're an Atonian, Gordon. I've never been so insulted. No, Herovian. So I'm afraid I'm not a fan of either Plumer or Maud.
0: Yeah, so it's what I say. That Maud was an Atonian. I'm usually after. All right. Well, he was an attorney, but didn't have a lot of money, actually. He was always concerned that, I mean, he was always trying to get staff jobs because he could then live on his pay, whereas um, command uh, wasn't going to be so easy. Particularly, he was commissioned to the Coldstream Guards. Now, that meant that they spent a lot of time in London. Um, the, the Brigade of Guards, the, the Monarchs, personal troops, and for a long time, guards battalions weren't allowed to serve east of Suez. They had to be near enough to be recalled should the nation be in danger. That, of course, long, long gone. But at the time, this was the case. And, of course, if you're in London, um, it's very expensive. expensive now. If, if you're a, a guard subaltern in London, it's not cheap. I mean, as we all know. I mean, I was... Yeah, they have to live south of the river now, Gordon. Well, I know. It's frightful. Well, I mean, I was having lunch at, at Rules last week. And Rose is a wonderful restaurant and the quality is always the same, hasn't changed at all. I've never oh, been, I've you know. always wanted to go actually. Oh, you must go, it was wonderful, super restaurant, really is excellent food, best steak and kidney pie in England. No, it's very, very good. But it's now, it's 50 quid a head uh, without the second bottle of claret, you know. it's it's Prices go up and up and up. So Plumer, commissioner of the Coldstream, not a lot of private money. Uh, he's always been a bit pushed at, at that sort of level. Plenty of active service. He sees active service in the Sudan, of course. Um, uh, Kitchener's War in the Sudan, uh, South African War. Um, he does find himself um, a, a staff job as um, responsible for. He organises the all the celebrations for Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. But then he's off to South African War, of course. 1914. He's he's actually only a colonel in in 1914 when the war breaks out. Very quickly, he's a brigade commander and then a. Divisional commander in the Dardanelles. In fact, he's 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 there. He lands in Suvla Bay. It's never Dardanelles. Gallipoli was never going to work. There's nothing that that Maude as a divisional commander can do to make it work. And eventually, of course, he's he's sent off to the to to Mesopotamia. He becomes the commander in chief there, and he finds it's a pretty. The situation is not good. Uh, the administration uh, has broken down. Um, the, 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 there are all sort of medical problems soldiers are suffering from everything from beriberi to malaria and he gets a grip and and he really sorts it out and, and things are, are looking up and he starts to make push back the tax and, and and things are really looking good he was offered a cup of coffee in a Jewish school and he said thank you very much and could he have some milk with it and he poured a somebody produced a jug of milk and he poured that into his coffee and drank it and the milk was contaminated. No fault. It wasn't trying to poison him or anything like that. The result was he got cholera and he died, which is a shame because well, we still, was, yes, we, we still defeated the tax, But but it would have been uh, been nice if uh, if he'd
1: gone on and, from a uh, cup of coffee. Wow. Yeah, a cup of coffee and milk,
0: uh, and that that I think that's why we now pasteurise milk. I think. Yes. Uh, although when I was a boy, my grandfather was a. Was a farmer, and uh, we would always go there for Christmas and that sort of thing. And and they would the milk. They one of the girls would be sent down to or one of the chaps to, to to milk the cow, and the great jug of milk we brought, we all drank it, and it wasn't pasteurised and it didn't do us any harm at all. So quite why Maud's milk gave him cholera, I don't know. But but for some means, yeah. it, it was contaminated.
1: Well, maybe stored in a warm climate, maybe well, rife. It started to yeah.
0: started to go off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Louis
1: Pasteur, I don't think had um, appeared by then.
0: No, um, no, he hadn't.
1: I can't remember his exact. He's baby. from Arbois, which I do recommend visiting. Yeah. Anyway, well, so that's, Gordon, that's, that's the end of Maud. It, the, right? Well, and I think that's around about the end of our podcast because Maud, his cup, fatal cup of coffee. Is, yeah. a, is a is is quite a good way to end it. Ended, I think. The chap we ought
0: to talk about, if there's another opportunity, is Robertson. Is Robertson? He's not First World War, is he? Yeah, he's chief. of he? He's oh, C.I.G.S. For, for most of the war. Right, Gordon. Sorry.
1: Now Robertson. He's interesting because am I right in saying that he rose from the ranks?
0: Yeah. Now he's he's fascinating. Uh, nobody's ever done it before, and then couldn't do now. Uh, I mean, Robertson was born in the most humble circumstances. Uh, his father was a was a small time tailor. Both his parents were illegitimate. Um, he went to the to the village school, uh, left school I think at the age of twelve, went into domestic service. He was a he was a servant in somebody's house. As soon as he was seventeen, joined the army, uh, enlisted as a, as a trooper, as a private soldier in the cavalry. Um, He's in the, he, he gets promoted reasonably quickly, Lance Corporal Corporal Sergeant. Uh, he becomes, after um, about 10 years, he becomes what they call a troop sergeant major. Now, that's equivalent of a staff sergeant or a color sergeant today. And then somebody, his officer, somebody thinks, this is a bright boy. And after 11 years in the ranks, he's commissioned as a second lieutenant. That's extraordinary. Extraordinary for the people. I couldn't have it couldn't happen now, and it would be extraordinary. It extraordinary then. But obviously, his talents were realized. Now, he he did, unlike most uh, private soldiers of the time, whose sole interest was drink and women, probably in that order, Robertson hardly drank, and he read. He read a huge amount. He educated himself, if you like. He spoke six Indian languages, plus French and German. He taught himself those. I didn't learn that at school. So he was, he was very, he was obviously a natural linguist. He was obviously very intelligent. And once commissioned, he's in a cavalry regiment. Unfortunately, the regiment goes to India, where he can sort of live on his pay as long as yeah, he doesn't think.
1: cavalry uh, officer didn't. is um, expensive, and he has no money. Yeah.
0: yeah, and he's got no money. And for example, pipes were not allowed in the mess. And the only form of tobacco that he could afford was pipe tobacco, so he didn't smoke. In the mess, only cigars were permitted. No, no pipes. So he couldn't even smoke. He was a tremendously hard worker. He was naturally very intelligent. He never, and it was a great disappointment to him. He never commanded men from then on. Never commanded troops. He spent his entire service on the staff. You very often the intelligence staff, um, where he, which he did very he very good. Um, and he was he was an extremely good intelligence officer able to, to run networks to collate uh, and everything else um by the time of the Second World War uh, first of all he's the quartermaster General to Sir John French so he's the he's the head logistic officer in in the French's uh, BF and um, the retreat from moms, uh, which was was a pretty painful retreat all the way back to the Marne. The reason that succeeded was very largely due to Robertson because Robertson had thought right from the beginning, we are probably going to have to retreat. French didn't think that, um, but but Robertson did. He knew that we were going to be hugely outnumbered. He knew that on the left were only territorials, French territorials. Well, they wouldn't stand. He didn't think. And on the right was the French army and he thought the French army would probably withdraw. And if they did, they'd have, he'd have to as well. And he had planned previously and stockpiled every sort of half day's march. There was a ration dump, an ammunition dump and so on, all the way back. Uh, So, so, so that was him.
1: Um, he well, then. Well, uh, can I ask, Gordon? Was he popular? Because you know, particularly cavalry regiment, rather a one imagines snobbish, snobbish institution. Yeah. Is, is he is he popular, or or is he does he suffer from? Yeah,
0: no, he's he's very well liked. Um, there are some accounts that um, his mess bill was was paid by the other officers without telling him. Uh, he'd have been highly offended if if he'd known. Uh, but Wasn't yeah,
1: he wondering wh- where all these drinks were coming from then?
0: Well, well, no, he did just didn't drink. He drank water. Right. He he, right. he didn't drink, um, and of course he was commissioned not into his own regiment, commissioned into another cavalry regiment. But but yeah, he seems to be. He was highly respected, and and certainly when he became chief of the pale general staff, um, as he did um, very early on, uh, nobody questions it. It's he is the man for the job. He's got a very good brain. He, he has his Yorkshire accent for the rest of his life. I mean, he's known affectionately as Wally. I mean, his name is William. He's Wally. And um, he had a broad accent, never, never bothered to change it. And when summoned to the cabinet and they would make some suggestion to him, and he was a great one for saying, I've heard different. And that was it. He was a great supporter of Haig. He and Haig get on exceedingly well together, funnily enough. I mean, they're from completely different extremes of society. I mean, Haig is is moneyed, gentry, admittedly trade, but nevertheless. Whereas Robertson is, you know, left school, illegitimate parents, terrible, humble situation, extremistic service. And here he is as a field marshal. He's he's the other field marshal because he's the chief of the general staff. And he supports Haig, right. I mean, he protects Haig from the machinations of of people like Lloyd George and his satraps. It's but amazing,
1: a, really. It really is it amazing is extraordinary. to go it's from, extraordinary. from private to field marshal in yeah. the British Army. Yeah, it's
0: extraordinary. You couldn't do it now. I mean, he was 20, he was 28, I think, when he was actually commissioned.
1: So that's very Um, old for... It is very old. Yeah.
0: Now you can, now the upper age limit actually for Sandhurst is 28, which I think is far too high, but, but there it is. But if now you went at 28, there's no way you could become anything other than you might make major. You might. You certainly wouldn't get any higher than that. It's because you can't get all the courses in and the requisite regimental duty and everything else. Uh, so you couldn't do it now. To do it then, in the 1880s, uh, was extraordinary. Extraordinary. And it says quite a lot for the system. that here is this chap who's who's um, from the most humble of origins uh, with his broad Yorkshire accent, and he's got the respect of the whole of the army. And you never hear, I mean, you'd expect there to be staid remarks from some, but there aren't. You know, I mean, he's he's proved himself that he can do the business. As CIGS, he's very good at deciding what's a priority and what isn't. He was, he was, I may say, he was Commandant of the Staff College, proud of that. Now, to put a man like that in as Commandant of the Staff College, you really do have to have total faith in him, because the Staff College is the organization that produces the generals of tomorrow. So the Commandant has got to be somebody that you've got total confidence in, and and. You know, will will manage a a training regimen that will produce these sort of people. So that's the sort of confidence the system had in him.
1: Was he quite similar to Brooke? Then they have similar roles—one in the First World War, one in the Second World War. Are they? Um, yeah, yes. Their except, skills are similar, I suppose. Yeah, maybe not except that the, um
0: of course, the the army in the second and the first World war was much bigger than it was in the in the Second World War. But but yeah, same job, chief of the Imperial general staff. And whereas Brooke had to try and keep. Churchill under control. Robertson had to try and keep um, Lord George under control. He didn't have a problem with Asquith. A- Asquith, in fact, was was very much in favour of Robertson. Lord George didn't like Robertson because Robertson would defend Hague and, and and stop Lord George from interfering with Hague. Then after the war, Robertson commands the um, British Army of Occupation uh, in in Germany. The, British Army of the Rhine
1: it's an extraordinary story Robertson so I, I'm I'm feeling very stupid now for not having uh included him
0: no no I'd people tend to overlook him but he's very important and and as I say he's a one-off you nobody had ever done it before or since you and you simply couldn't today
1: well yeah well he's a real life Richard Sharp
0: yes um there were lots of Richard Sharps but in fact Uh, during that Napoleonic period, but they tended not to get higher than some got to major. None really got higher than that. The problem with them was that once the war stopped, of course, they didn't have the money to purchase commission. The the Richard Sharps, and there were loads of Richard Sharps at regimental duty, and they had got their promotion either because there was a vacancy caused by death, which the commander-in-chief could fill without purchase, or they'd led a forlorn hope they could get promoted without purchase, or they'd taken dispatches back promoter without purchase. And of course, when the war was going on, there were lots of opportunities. Once the war stops, uh, the Richard Sharps can get no further. And Wellington said the trouble was that they all turned to drink. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, so, yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, uh, Robertson was the only Richard Sharp of his generation. Yes.
1: Wonderful way to end it, Gordon. Mm. That's been extraordinary. Thank you very much. Absolutely fantastic. So, well, next we need to move... And I'm going to give you plenty of time to relax and gather your strength for the, I guess, the Victorian era. We'll go back to sort of the South African War and, and further back. There are plenty of imperial wars to talk about and, and okay. commanders involved.
0: Well, we've got people like Roberts and and Woolsey and yeah, lots, lots of them.
1: Yes. And Avalok and Redvers Buller. There are some great yeah, Victorian yeah. names here. aren't Yeah, there? yeah,
0: yeah. yeah yeah Buller is an interesting one it's it, most of um oh what's that book by the engineer that had his hand blown off um the, the psychology of military incompetence he's very critical of Buller I think slightly unfairly but
1: there I go yes. wonderful stuff Gordon yes. this has been great thank you okay old chap see you soon thanks so much for listening please do get in touch if you've got any comments but until then thank you and good night